ever get any vacation time? Some of you are like, no. Some of you are like, I'm retired, vacation time all the time. Um, some of us, we have specific time set apart in a year that we call our vacation time. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you're one of those people, whether you are or whether you aren't, and just think for a second that you've been working all year long laboring, so tired, so weary, you are ready for your vacation time. So what you did special for this year is you planned a trip to Hawaii with your family. And you're so excited to get to Hawaii, just kick back in the sun and look at the pretty scenery and go scuba diving. And you have every day planned out and you're so excited for this relaxing time. Now, the day of, the day that you're going to fly out, suppose that your boss called you and said, uh, I'm going to really need you to come to work today like I need you bad. There's lots of people and they're in need and we need your expertise. We need your skill. And I don't know if we could do this without you. How would you respond? Some of you might say, well, I'm quitting that job. Some of you might say, I, I would be frustrated. I would be angry with my boss. I deserve this time off. I deserve my vacation time. I've been working, laboring so hard, being faithful all year. Don't I deserve a little time off to relax with my family? Well, we're going to see here in this story that though the disciples didn't plan a trip to Hawaii with their families, there was some anticipation of a vacation, if you will, a time of rest. And we're going to see that Jesus asks a little bit more of them, a little bit more from them. Which brings me to the title of this message, Purposed in Ministry Despite Weariness. Purposed in ministry despite weariness. Now you might say, why are we doing a message about ministry? I'm not in ministry. I'm not called to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or whatever. But I want to assure you that you are called to ministry, at least at some capacity. See, that's the great commission. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. That's not just the calling that he's placed on my life. That's the calling that he's placed on each and every believer's life. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to quit their jobs and pursue full-time ministry. But we're called to be ministers in some capacity. Samantha and Michael are called to make disciples of Abigail. You might be called to make disciples in your family. You're called to make disciples maybe at work. But regardless of what the situation may be, we're all called to make disciples. We're all called to engage in ministry. And as we'll see in this story, even when it's inconvenient. See, Matthew chapter 14 um, this first section of this passage is uh, <clears throat> really reflecting and recounting what happened when John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. 
Now, we talked about this several weeks ago, back when I taught on Matthew chapter 11, and John was in prison, and John was doubting whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or not. So we've already gone here and talked about this, so I'm going to briefly go through it, and then the main focus for the message is going to be verses 13 to 21. Let's pray and dive into the text. Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we want to learn from you. God, and I pray that as you taught these disciples how to disciple, Lord, I pray that that's what you would speak to us. God, that we would be open to hear what your spirit has to say to us. Lord, that you would... Um, just really minister and pierce our hearts, God. Encourage us to be like what you've called us to be. We love you. In your name, amen. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Okay, so this is Herod the Great's son. This is Herod Antipas. Herod the Great was the one that the temple was named after. See, Zerubbabel built the temple after it was destroyed in 586 BC. He was sent back by um, the king of Persia to rebuild the temple. Um, So Zerubbabel builds this temple, but then Herod the Great, he makes a bunch of upgrades on it. Okay, so they call this temple Herod's temple. So Herod the Great did a lot of things. This isn't Herod the Great. This is his son. Uh, Herod the Great actually was the one in the beginning of Matthew that um, tried to have all the males under two years old killed. Okay, he was trying to have the Messiah killed. We know that Jesus escaped from that situation. But this is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. He has... Um, rule and reign over the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus did most of his ministry. Look at verse 2. And said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So Herod, because he had John the Baptist killed, he's in fear almost for his life because he thinks John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and now he's out to get him. Look what happens, verse 3. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So we see that Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned because John the Baptist spoke out against Herod in his marriage. Why? Well, what Herod did was he got a divorce from the prince, uh, princess of Petra. Then he seduced his brother's wife into marrying him. This is wrong on all aspects and capacities, right? He divorces his wife, then he marries his brother's wife. So John the Baptist, rightly so, he's speaking out against Herod. So Herod has him placed in prison. Verse 5 And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before him and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. 
So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So we see that um, John actually developed a relationship with Herod, and Herod gained respect for John while he was in prison. That's why he didn't really want to do this thing, but because he promised Herodias's daughter that he would do whatever she asked, he felt obliged to have John beheaded. So we see here that John is beheaded. It's really not um, so much because Herod wanted it, but because Herodias, his wife, wanted it to happen. And so now it causes all these problems. Important to note in verse 12, the disciples come, come, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Very important for context. Look what happens in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So this story is actually um, one of the few stories that's in every single gospel account. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to look at uh, a couple other accounts um, several times throughout the text to kind of get more color and understand some more details to what exactly happened in the story. First off, we see that John just got beheaded. These people, the disciples, they come and they tell Jesus that John was beheaded. So verse 13, when he heard this, he departed from there. He left that place, it says, to get alone. Well, why was he leaving? Um, Probably uh, one of two, if not both reasons. Now, Herod just had John the Baptist killed. Um, he's worried that Jesus is John the Baptist uh, reincarnate. So he possibly is under the assumption that Herod's going to come after him next. So Jesus might be leaving because he knows it's not his time yet to die. It's not his hour yet. But also, let's just think um, in humanity's terms, his cousin just died. John the Baptist was his cousin, right? So his cousin just passed away. So he probably wants to get alone because he's a little sad. He's a little sorrowful. And it's not just his cousin. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, he says, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born from a woman. So he has this special place in his heart for John the Baptist. This was the man that baptized him. This was the man that prepared his coming. This is a man that he knew about from the foundations of the earth. Because remember, Jesus is God. So John the Baptist is a pivotal part of the gospel in preparing the coming of the Lord. So Jesus, rightly so, he goes to get away. Now, also, he was just engaging in ministry. He just taught the Matthew 13 parables and continued to engage in ministry. So he's likely a little weary as well. You ever feel like uh, you just need some me time? Yeah, like I just need to get alone. I just need, I got the kids, I got church, I got work, I got all these different things going on in my life. I just need me time. I just need to get alone. It's okay. Jesus had the same heart. There was times in his life where he just needed to get alone. And typically he would go and get alone 
uh, with the Father in a time of prayer. Now look what happens. As he's trying to go off to get alone, he's not alone. It says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, it says, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Okay, if you would flip with me to the same story in Mark, Mark chapter 6, this is important to get context and understand exactly what's really happening here. See, Matthew's gospel, it's not written in chronological order. That's not what Matthew's doing. Luke's gospel is pretty much chronological order because that's what he's trying to do. Okay, in Matthew's gospel, it's more topical. He's speaking about specific things to get specific points across. So if we look at Mark's account in Mark 6, we see some chronology to this. See, the apostles, they just got back from being sent out by Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 10, but this is actually what just happened before the story that we just got into. So if you would look at Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says, Then then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both that they had done and what they had taught. So they just got done preaching the gospel. They were sent out two by two. They're doing miracles. They're preaching the word and power. All these things are happening. So they're excited. They're ecstatic. They come back and they want to tell Jesus everything that they had done. Look what happens in verse 31. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So Jesus this is the same story. He says, Hey, come with me. We're going to get some rest. I know you've been engaging with in a lot of ministry. I just sent you out. So now it's time for a reprieve. Now it's time for a vacation. Come with me and get some rest. Look at verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So Jesus, at this point, he's not by himself. He goes to get away by himself, but he's not by himself yet. He actually ends up by himself next week. We'll talk about it. So, verse 33, but the multitude saw him departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So Jesus is on a boat with the disciples. They cross the waters, and the multitude, assuming that they know where they're going to go, they run around the waters to get to where Jesus and the disciples are coming right? So Jesus says, hey, come with me, get some rest. But the multitudes, they see where they're going and they run around to get there before the disciples and Jesus get there. Why is this important? Jesus just said, come with me and get some rest. But what Jesus is actually going to lead them into is another needy multitude, which brings me to the first of six points today. Um, Ministry never ends. Ministry never ends. Just when you thought you were going to get some time alone, just when you thought you were going to get a time of relaxation, here's this multitude mobbing you for more ministry. See, there are no breaks in Christianity. We're always on call all the time. It's like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be a Christian on Sunday and Wednesday night and then the rest of the day I'm taking a break. Or I'm going to be a Christian Monday through Friday and then Saturday and Sunday. That's my time. 
It's like, no, Christianity, there are no breaks in Christianity. We're always called to be on call. We're always called to be available. And I'm not saying, don't take this out of context, that we can never have vacation or spend time with family or anything like that. I'm speaking specifically to this story, okay? In ministry, there are always people in need. Ministry is full of needy people. I promise you that in ministry, you'll never run out of people that are in need. There's always, when you're done with some, there's going to be others. It it, it never ends. There's a constant surplus of people that are in need. And typically, the people that are in need, they don't really care if you're tired. They don't really care if you're weary. They don't really care if you needed a vacation. See, this multitude, regardless of whether they know that Jesus is bringing the disciples out here to get some rest, they have a need. They need healing. They need food. They need all these different things. And they are under the assumption that their needs are more important than Jesus's needs, that their needs are more important than the disciples' needs. Whether their need can wait or not, It's not really important. They believe that their need needs to be taken care of immediately. How do you respond when your needs conflict with someone else's needs? Whose needs in that setting will take priority? Well, whose needs should take priority? Let's see what happens in the story. I think Jesus is trying to teach us something. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus moved with compassion. In Mark's account, chapter 6, verse 34, he said he looked at them as if they were sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion because they didn't have a shepherd looking over them. That was the reason why he had compassion for them. There was no one to take care of them. Regardless, Jesus, he responds with a heart of compassion immediately. When you're tired, when you're weary, when you're at the end of yourself, do you immediately respond with compassion for people? Not usually. We respond with selfishness. We're like, dude, that's great. Can I talk to you tomorrow? I know you're in need, but can we schedule this for a later time? That's not the heart of Jesus. He's going to get his way, get away. He just lost his cousin. He's in mourning, yet there's people that are in need and he engages with these people because he has a sincere heart of compassion for them. Brings me to the second point. Ministry requires compassion. Ministry requires compassion. He saw there was a need and he had compassion on them. He genuinely cared for them and he loved him them. And this love, it wasn't just a feeling. It didn't just say he was moved with compassion and he just, that's the end of the story. No, he was moved with compassion because he loved him, them. And this love was expressed through action. He did something about it. He healed them. Mark's account, it says he taught them and healed them, but he did something with the compassion. See, love is an action. Love doesn't just stand there. It does something, right? Love in the Bible, it's not just like this uh, intense emotion, like I love my wife or I love my child or I love 
all these people, there is an emotional thing. But when love is defined in the Bible, it's an action. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he tells us what love does. He says, this is what love looks like. This is what love does. And one of the definitions of love that he gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, many of you, when we do the meet and greet at the end of announcements, or sorry, at the end of worship, everybody say hi to one another. You guys are usually pretty kind, right? We're kind to one another. Hey, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. Oh, you're new, whatever it is. And we have this kindness because it's expected of us. But what happens when you're weary? What happens when you're tired? What happens when it's not here at the church, but it's at home with your husband or your wife? Are you still suffering long and being kind? That's like one of those extremely challenging verses in scripture. Suffer long and be kind. I don't care if you're kind when it's convenient. He says, suffer long and be kind. Wait a minute. When the last thing I want to do is be kind, that's when you want me to be kind? Yeah, that's when it counts. That's when it matters. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's mourning. He's weary, but he's still being kind. His compassion was expressed through kindness. See, love, it's not limited by weariness. His love wasn't limited by weariness. See, his love and compassion for these people gave him the motivation to overcome his weariness. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Why does he say that? Because we often grow weary of doing good. It's like, man, haven't I done enough good? It's probably what the disciples are thinking. We just got sent out and engaged with all these people. We healed people in your name. We preached the gospel in your name. Didn't we do enough? Don't grow weary while doing good. Love will give you the power to overcome your weariness. See, To love the way Jesus loved is not natural. We don't naturally suffer long and be kind to people. It's supernatural. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to operate in this kind of love. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, says it like this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You're not going to be able to do this in your own strength. You're not going to be able to love the way I'm teaching you to love in your own power, in your own strength. You need my power. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to love like I love, to have a heart for people like I have a heart for people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke, the author of Acts, writes, Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. We see in this verse that the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness of Jesus Christ, to be an ambassador for him, to manifest his name to the world. That's the purpose of the power. And we see that word witness is, you know this, most of you, is where we get the word martyr from. It's the power to bear witness unto death. That's what it literally means. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, it doesn't always mean that everybody in the church has to be a martyr and you have to die for your faith. 
But Paul says, I die daily, meaning, no, it's, it's not just, uh, I, I physically die and I'll be persecuted to death for my faith and bearing witness to Jesus. No, it's, uh, death to self. It's sacrifice. It's laying down your life. And that's what the power will, of the Holy Spirit will give us. The disciples in that moment, the last thing they want to do is take care of this multitude. But the power of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to engage with people, have compassion on people, even when we don't want to. Sometimes we need to sacrifice our physical needs for someone else's spiritual needs. And that's the case here for the disciples in the story. Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and put, or sorry, buy themselves food. Remember, Jesus, he looked on these people with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. That's what Mark tells us. That was his heart. These people need a shepherd. And look at how the disciples respond. Yeah, they were healed. Yeah, they were uh, communicated to. The word was invested into them, but there was still a need. And the disciples, they come up with a very fleshly solution. Let's send them away. Let somebody else take care of it. Now, it's good that they see the need and they want to solve the problem, but they don't have a heart for the people. Which brings me to the third point. Ministry requires a shepherd's heart. Ministry requires a shepherd's heart. The disciples... They see this multitude and their need and they want to send them away. Again, let someone else take care of it so we can get rest like Jesus promised. So we can have our little vacay time. Send these people off. They're preventing us from the rest that we deserve because of all of our hard work. This is not the heart of a shepherd, but rather the heart of a hireling. Jesus talks about the difference in John chapter 10. If you'd flip with me there, John chapter 10, Jesus tells us what it means to be a hireling, what it means to be a good shepherd like him. In John chapter 10, verse 12, says, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaving the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. The hireling is just a job. When times get tough, when the situation gets hard, I'm out. I'm going to bail. That's the heart of the disciples in this moment. They're hearts aren't rooted in a sincere love for the people. This is just a job. This is just something that Jesus asked me to do. I'm not going to go the extra mile. I'm not going to go above and beyond because I don't really care about the people. I'm just doing what Jesus asked me to do. And I want to get out of any situation that I can. I don't want to do more than I think I can handle. The shepherd's heart He has a sincere love for the people. He truly loves the sheep and will do whatever it takes to make sure their needs are met. He explains it in John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. 
As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. A shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. A shepherd is willing to do whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice it takes to tend to, to take care of the sheep. Ministry It's not a job, it's a calling, and we're all called to it. But with the calling, there needs to be that shepherd's heart. There needs to be a sincere love for people. Now you might say, well, shoot, I know I'm not supposed to be in ministry because I don't love people. And I would tell you, we already talked about how we're all called to ministry in some capacity, right? And as Christians, when you look at love, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a direct commandment from the Lord. John puts it like this in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. See that? We could say, oh, I love God and I'm into like pursuing a relationship with him, but I don't really like the church. I don't really like people. So I'll pursue, I see this so much in California, I'll pursue my personal relationship with the Lord, but I don't really do the church thing. I love God, I just don't really, eh, the church, the people, I don't really get along with that. John said you're a liar. That's what it says in scripture. If you say you love God, but you're not willing to be a part of the group setting, if you're not willing to love on your brother and your sister in Christ, John, not me, John says he's a liar said, if we're going to love God, he who loves God must love his brother also. It's a must. It's a commandment. And again, this isn't something that we can do naturally. This is a supernatural thing because there's often people in the congregation that we really don't see eye to eye with. There's people around us that we don't always get along with. But remember, it doesn't matter how we feel. Love isn't a feeling. It's an action. It's expressing love towards someone even when you don't feel like it. This is the heart of a shepherd. Now the disciples, they weren't there yet. That's why Jesus is trying to instill this in them. Matthew chapter 14 verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Don't send them away. Don't allow someone else to take care of it. You're going to take care of it. You give them something to eat. Remember, the disciples are weary. They think they're going to get rest. Now, Jesus just asked another thing from them. This is probably the last thing they want to hear. Really? We just were sent out. We did what you asked. Now we were supposed to go to this deserted place and have vacay. But you've been healing and teaching. And we've been here and we wanted to chill. But now you're asking us to do something else. We have to feed there's fifteen to 20,000 people here. It says 5,000 men plus women and children. So there's about fifteen to 20,000 people. Imagine that. Jesus says, oh, you 12, you go feed them. 15, 20,000 people. Are you serious? I would have probably started crying. It's like, uh, we just did all this work and now we're supposed to take care. Of, how can we possibly take care of these people? 
Jesus, again, he's trying to teach the disciples something about ministerial leadership. Again, he's trying to teach them what it means to have a shepherd's heart. How can you give when you have nothing left to give? See, ministry will take you to the very end of yourself and then ask you to give some more. That's what he's doing here. He's taking them to the very end of themselves. And then he's saying, I want you to give some more. Jesus, he's discipling these disciples. He sees their hearts as hirelings and he says, this isn't acceptable. If you're going to carry out my ministry, when I leave, you need to have my heart. You need to have a shepherd's heart in Jesus. He doesn't just teach. He doesn't just communicate what it means to have a shepherd's heart. He leads them by example. He trains them in what it means to have a shepherd's heart. And Peter He got this. He understood this. And he writes about it later. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's here, likely, in this setting. It says the disciples, he's one of them. Now, I don't know if he's thinking about this specific scenario or just how Jesus led in general, but he got the heart of his shepherd and he communicates this to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Look at the things that he's saying. Don't serve out of compulsion. Don't do it willingly. Why? In that setting, they were struggling with being willing. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, like you want to do it. You need to have a heart for the people to actually want to help the people. And he says, being examples to the flock. Why? Because Jesus set the perfect example for the disciples. He taught them how to be a good shepherd in the way that he lived his life. See, this is discipleship. Discipleship isn't just communicating the word of God or doing good things. Discipleship is training people how to live out the word of God. That's what Jesus did. So often when he communicates a specific thing, he'll bring the disciples alongside with him and show them how to live it out or put them in a specific challenge where they're forced to live it out. He trains them how to live out the word of God, not just communicates it to them. He led them, again, by example. Matthew chapter 14, verse 17. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. So amongst all of them, in John chapter 6, we see it was a little boy's bread and fish. Between all these people, this is all that they have. They have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, give me it. Give me all of it. See, Jesus, he doesn't ask what we don't have. He asks what we do have. He's not asking them to give what they don't have, but he is asking them to give everything that they do have. Which brings me to the fourth point. Ministry gives everything. Ministry gives everything. He's saying, disciples, I don't expect you to have 5,000 loaves and 5,000 fish. 
but what you do have, everything that you do have, I want to, I want you to give that to me. See, the Lord, He knows your limitations, but He also knows what you're capable of. He won't ask more of you than He knows you can handle, but He will push you past what you think you can handle. The disciples, they think they're at the end of themselves. And we might think, Lord, I thought you wouldn't ever give me anything that I couldn't handle. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I thought that was like your deal with us. That was your deal with humanity. The Lord's like, well, that's what you think you can handle. I know what you can actually handle. And I'm going to give you a little bit more than you think you can handle. But you're just going to have to give everything you have to me so that I can do something with it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 19. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Okay, so what Jesus does is he has all the multitude sit down. He actually has them sit down in grass. See, in this specific verse, in this specific story, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd, and he takes this multitude, he takes this, these sheep, and he has them sit down in green pastures. Psalm chapter 23, verse 2, right? The Lord makes me to lie down in green pastures. See, he's fulfilling something else here too. If you look at Psalm 78, it's a psalm that's talking about um, the Exodus really, but just as God provided for the Israelites the manna and the fire and the cloud, so many different things through the Exodus, we're going to see that Jesus provides for this multitude in the wilderness as well. Remember, they're in a deserted place. Psalm chapter 78, verse 19. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Meaning, can God prepare a feast in the wilderness? Can he provide food in the wilderness? Well, just like in Exodus, God provided the manna. So too, in this setting with the 5,000, Jesus is providing bread. He's providing fish. What's my point? Jesus is fulfilling scripture in this specific story. See, the disciples are looking at this multitude as a big problem. There's a problem and need, we need a solution. Let's send them away. And Jesus is saying, hey, you got to recognize that what you think is a problem is really not a problem. It's an opportunity for me to fulfill scripture. See, when we know the word of God, we'll no longer see problems as problems. We'll see problems as an opportunity to fulfill scripture. We'll see problems as an opportunity to walk out our faith. Any situation that you consider, maybe it's a trial or a hardship. And James tells us um, that trials in James chapter 1 verse 2 to 4, trials produce something. They're not happening unknown to God. No, God knows about the trials and he's doing something there. He's trying to perfect you. 
He's trying to mature you. He's trying to make you more like him. And that's just one example. But as we come to know the word deeper and deeper, have a better understanding, we'll no longer see problems as problems. We'll see problems as an opportunity to fulfill scripture. That's what the disciples are missing. They just see the problem with the multitudes. There's all these people that need that need something. And Jesus is like, you dummies, do you not know the word of God? This is an opportunity for me to fulfill scripture. This is an opportunity for me to prove to the multitude that I truly am God. Just as God provided in the wilderness, so too am I providing for this multitude in this deserted place, in this wilderness. And he blesses the fish and the loaves. Verse 19, and then he gives them to the disciples and then the disciples give them to the multitudes. This again is a picture of discipleship. What Jesus has, he gives to the disciples, then the disciples give it to the multitudes. That's what we're all called to do. Jesus blesses us. He gives us specific things. He might give us understanding of the word of God and then he asks us to Share it with the multitudes. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to this young, gifted pastor, but it applies to all of us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's saying, Timothy, all the things I've invested into you, all the information, all the discipleship, all the knowledge, all the life experiences, I want you to take these things and I want you to invest them. I want you to entrust them into other faithful men. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing with the multitudes. Jesus blesses the bread and the fish. He multiplies it. He gives it to the disciples. Then the disciples are to take the food, spiritualize, spiritual food for us, and invest it into the multitude. See, Jesus doesn't give us understanding for understanding's sake. He doesn't give us fresh revelation of his word, deep insight into his word just for us. He gives us deep insight into his word so that we would take that and share it and invest it into other people. Understanding isn't just for the individual. Understanding is meant to be spread. We're called to take what Jesus gives us and to invest it, what Jesus gives us and invest it into others. I want to point out another <clears throat> point in this verse. See, it's Jesus that blesses and breaks the loaves. He's the one that multiplies it. Jesus is the one that does the miracle, not the disciples, which brings me to the fifth point. Jesus is really the one doing the ministry. Jesus is really the one doing the ministry. We aren't the ones that change people. We aren't the ones that transform sheep. Jesus is. I will never change anyone. Okay? 
Jesus is the one that changes people. He's the one that does the miracle. So often we can put this heavy burden and responsibility on our chest or on our back. And man, I need to, this person's not changing or my son or daughter, they've gone prodigal or whatever it is. I'm doing this ministry and there's no fruit. Well, if you're being obedient to what Jesus is asking you to do, then we really don't have to worry about it. Because Jesus is the one that's going to do the miracle. He's the one that's going to make the transformation happen. We're not called. We don't transform people. We provide an opportunity or an environment or a conversation where transformation might be able to take place. But it's the Lord that's doing the work. It's the Lord that's doing the ministry. And so often he's so faithful to remind us of this. Just like what he did with the disciples, will often bring us to the end of ourselves where we have nothing left so that we don't have a question as to whether we had something to do with it or he had something to do with it. So often he'll bring us to that place of dependence so that he can show up in a big way, that no flesh should glory in his presence and all the glory goes to him. It's like, man, I was weary, I was tired, but I did what you asked me to do and you showed up in this marvelous, this magnificent way. I'll tell you right now, the probably the greatest ministry experiences I've ever had is when I'm at the end of myself, when I'm absolutely tired, when I'm absolutely weary. Now we can call this ministry, and it is Sunday, Wednesday service, but most of my ministry opportunities happen outside of here. They happen late at night, text messages. They happen on my day off. They happen when I'm not expecting the things to happen. Why? Because we can plan for ministry and we can say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Not a bad thing. But as we see in this story with the disciples, the Lord will test us in our hearts for ministry by by like he does with them, expecting one thing and we get another thing. Now, a couple years back, I'll just just use one example, a couple examples back to back. Okay, so a couple years back, I I literally, I'd probably gotten in three days, max nine hours of sleep. I was working for Patmos. I get so much more sleep here at this church than I did there. Um, Literally, I got about nine hours of sleep um, and a little delirious. You know, when you, when you're sleep deprived, sometimes you start seeing stuff and everybody ever experienced that? You're like, I haven't slept. I'm not talking about doing drugs and being sleep deprived. I'm actually, okay. So <laughs> that's another, that's another, another time. Um, so we were at this school at, at FAU, Florida Atlantic University, and they had this, uh, this video that we were supposed to promote. It was a ministry thing. And we're at the end of ourselves, our whole group. And uh, we're supposed to invite all these people to watch this sex trafficking video. It's called Nefarious. Um, if you can handle it, try to watch it. But it's like devastating. It's 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 human trafficking and kids in Thailand and the whole deal. And it's, it's extremely disturbing, but very informative. So we're inviting all these kids from FAU to come to this thing, because if you really look into sex trafficking, it's not just a problem in, uh, in Asia or Eastern Europe or Central and South America. It's a problem all over the world, even in Florida, where I was at that time. So I'm like, Lord, I really don't want to do this. It's like, what do I know about sex trafficking? And like, 
I'm not going to have a lot of passion inviting these people to it because I just don't really have a heart for it. And so I prayed. I was like, God, give me a heart for this so I can invite people and communicate on some level of passion. So the Lord started stirring up in me, hey, what if that's your sister? What if that's your mom? Think about that. Identify with it. I start relating to it. I'm like, dang, man, that'd be horrible. Power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so I start talking to these people and I have so much passion and I'm so excited about this thing that I knew nothing about previously. And so many people came, not just because I was inviting them, but our whole group, we were so dependent on the Lord and we were passionate about doing ministry in that setting because there was these women, there was these people that are in need and people need to know about this. They need to be informed about it. So the place was packed. We really couldn't fit any more students from FAU in the building and the Lord used it in a magnificent way and actually called people into the ministry of sex trafficking. Now, the very next day, another night of like no sleep, uh, we go to this mall and I've, I've, I mentioned this story before, but it's just applicable and I'm going to tell it again. Um, so we're so tired. So we're literally, it's like the, uh, did I see that? Was that something? Am I seeing things? Am I hearing things? That, that type of weary. And I'm with my friend, Tim, and we're evangelizing at this mall. And there's literally five minutes left till the mall closes. And we're kind of goofing off. So we go to one of those, um, gosh, somebody reminded me last, last service. What are those things in the center of the mall? Yeah. Kiosk. Why can't I think of that word? So there's a kiosk in the mall and it's this young lady and she's selling wigs. Okay, she's selling wigs. Anybody wear wigs in here? I'm kidding, you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> so she's selling wigs, and me and my friend walk up to her, and we're like, uh, hey, can we try one on? Like, just dumb. She's like, no, you can't try one on because you're not going to buy one. I don't know how the conversation went from wigs to the gospel, but it did. And I started to minister to this girl. I don't even remember what I said. I started preaching the gospel to her, and immediately, weeping. She just starts bawling her eyes out, and what she says to me, I know what you're speaking is true because I see God in you. Now, this lady, she knew nothing about the Bible, but she saw the power of the Holy Spirit working through me. Now, I was tired. I was delirious. I must have looked like a crazy person. But she saw the power of God. And in that moment, Jesus, he manifested himself through me by the power of the Spirit. And this woman, she accepted Jesus right there in that moment. Now, I know it wasn't about persuasive words because I'm surprised I was able to put a sentence together. And the Lord used it. And so often he will use us when we're brought to the place of dependence, when we got nothing left in us so that we can say the excellence of the power is of God and not of us. We had nothing to do with it. This was Jesus doing the ministry. This wasn't me. Matthew chapter 14, verse 20. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So look what happens. They started with what? Five loaves and two fish. They walk away with 12 baskets full of food. There were leftovers. They literally received more than they gave. Which brings me to the last point, point number six. In ministry, you can expect to receive more than you give. See, 
the very thing that the disciples thought was going to take more away from them actually ended up giving back to them. They left that situation with more than they started with. So often when we think about ministry, when we consider it, we're like, I'm pouring out my life. I'm investing all this time and energy and effort in all these things. And there's some truth to that. But the reality of scripture is as we pour out our lives, as we invest everything we have, God actually gives us more than what we started with. That's why he says in John chapter four, verse 34, you can write that down. John four thirty four. after Jesus was investing the word of God into the Samaritan woman, the disciples come back and say, Jesus, you want some food? Aren't you hungry? Jesus looks at him. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have food of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is he talking about? That's not just feeding off the word of God. That's investing the word of God. What are the implications there? That there's a satisfaction and there's a fulfillment from investing the word of God into people. So we always think, man, I need a Sunday service or Wednesday service or whatever so I can get fed. But how often do you consider, no, I need to engage with somebody else so I can get fed. Ministry is an opportunity to be fed. Are you being fed here? I'm not talking about the pastries and the coffees out there, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritually fed. You don't have to answer me. Answer it for yourself. Maybe you're not. You're like, this this guy. If you're being spiritually fed, what are you doing with the spiritual food? Are you taking the food that's being delivered to you, that's being fed to you, and are you feeding others? That's what Jesus is teaching the disciples. Yeah, I'm going to take care of you, but you got to take care of my sheep. You need to take the food that I'm giving you and you need to feed others. Are you feeding others outside of here? See, if we're only being fed and we're not feeding others, then we're missing out on really half of our faith. It's only part of our faith to be fed and have the word of God come into our life and change us and transform us and gain understanding and a deeper knowledge and intimacy with the Lord. That's only part of it. The other part of it is taking all those things and investing it into other people, communicating to other people, sharing the gospel with other people, training people how to live out the word of God. So if we're only being fed and we're not feeding others, then we're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to be fulfilled. We're not going to gain the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. So many people are like, man, I thought Jesus promised this abundant life. Well, we also know that he promised trials and tribulations, but in context to the abundant life, that's an, that's an eternal and internal thing. That's the fruit of the spirit that's experiencing love and joy on a level that you never have before, on a level that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. And we go to church and I'm going to church on Sunday and Wednesday and I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm getting poured into and all this stuff, but I'm still unsatisfied. I'm still not happy. I'm still not experiencing joy because everything's about you. It's all about getting fed. And it's not about feeding others. The secret to joy 
is it's the acronym J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. It's focusing on Jesus, focusing on others and putting yourself last. That's when we're the most satisfied. That's when we're the most fulfilled. And that was the way of Jesus. It's contrary to the way that we think. We think I need to provide for myself. I need to take care of myself so that I can be happy. The pursuit of happiness, it's false. The pursuit of happiness is really the pursuit of Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did the way that he did them. That's how we experience true joy. That's how we experience true fulfillment. And look at this in verse 21. It says, there was 5,000, right? Besides women and children. Like I said, this is like fifteen to 20,000 people. Look at what Jesus did with a little. He had a little bit of food, 12 disciples, and he impacted thousands. 12 disciples, these, this multitude, they just witnessed an absolute miracle. They just saw Jesus do something that only God could do because Jesus is God. Now, these are only 12 disciples, five loaves, two fish. Imagine what this church could do. Imagine what we got, whatever, 100, 200 people that come on a weekly basis. Imagine how many people we could impact. Think about it. 12 people impacting 15 to 20,000 people. If our church was ministry minded, and I know many of you are, this is just an encouragement. If our church was purposed in ministry despite weariness if we were purposed in ministry regardless of what's going on in our lives we would literally be a part of and bear witness to jesus transforming thousands and thousands of lives so i want to ask you who are you feeding if you're not feeding anyone i want to encourage you to start Don't let these messages stay here. They're not meant to just stay here. Take them with you out there. And I know many of you have, as you're hearing the message, the Lord's speaking to you something personally and you're you're developing it even more. It's like, oh, this connects to this and this connects to that. Yeah, he's doing that for a reason. He wants you to take that and entrust it into other faithful people. He doesn't want it to stay here. So again, pray about, consider, Who can I invest into this week? What ministry opportunities can I take advantage of this week? And maybe it's a a child or maybe it's a friend or maybe it's someone you meet this week. But if we're only being fed and we're not feeding, again, we're missing out on half of our faith. My desire for this church, just like Jesus's was, was is that you would have an abundant life, that you'd be filled with joy. But you're not going to be filled with joy if you're just getting filled with the word and you're not feeding someone else that word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story, God. Um, The miracle that you did, but the lesson, Lord, here is is amazing, God. Um, It's so easy to identify with the disciples, Lord. When we're weary, when we're tired, all we think about is ourselves. We We don't really consider other people often in those places of brokenness and dependence and weariness. Lord, but I pray that you would give us your heart, that you would give us shepherds' hearts, that we would um, invest and engage with people, that the things that you 
feed us, we would feed others, Lord. And I pray for each person in this church, me included, God, that you would bring people into our lives to invest into, Lord, because we know that your heart is for discipleship. You told us to go and make disciples, and we know we're called to be disciples that make disciples. So, Lord, bless this time in your name. Amen.